Uh, want to tell you about my first full-time ministry assignment. Um, I was a, uh, a youth pastor at a Baptist church in Brewster for five years, and uh, that was an incredibly gracious church. It was incredibly gracious of them to take in a very young, a very inexperienced, and a very idealistic guy like me and uh, give me a shot at doing ministry. And I remain um, just forever grateful to them because uh, there was a lot of bumps along the way. Uh, But my task there, my assignment was to start up a youth ministry from scratch. It was a fairly large church that didn't have a youth ministry, so they invited me to come in and, and start one up. And so I took a little bit of time, uh, recruited a few volunteer leaders, and then when we were ready, we scheduled our first kickoff event. And it was what is called uh, a fast food progressive dinner. Um, Yeah, this was one of those youth ministry staples back in the 90s. And the idea was you would load up all the kids in different cars. I think we had six cars. And we would proceed to different places for different courses of this this progressive meal. So our first stop was at 7-Eleven where we got a big gulp and that was our drink. And then we went on to McDonald's and we got French fries and then we would go to the Chinese restaurant, I think, and we got an egg roll and then we go on and on and on. You get the idea. So, so that was the plan, um, but, uh, but things didn't quite go according to plan for my very first youth ministry event because somehow, some way, we ended up leaving two of the girls behind at stop number two at McDonald's. And that alone was bad enough, but what made it even worse is that we didn't realize we left them behind until two stops later. So when we finally realized that, uh, the event stopped immediately. Everybody got into the cars. We drove all the way back to McDonald's as fast as we could without breaking any laws. And we went in search of these two girls who we'd left behind. Problem is, they were nowhere to be found. Now, we didn't know it at the time. Um, and of course, uh, you know, this was before cell phones, but, but they had picked up a payphone, put a quarter in it, and called their parents. Their parents picked them up, and they were waiting for us back at the church parking lot. So we're frantically looking all over for them. We can't find them, and so we decide, all right, we're going to go back to the church parking lot as well. So we caravan back there, and as we're pulling in, I see these two girls there. They're safe in the parking lot, and I was incredibly relieved. My thought was crisis averted. All is well that ends well. That's what I thought. But, but this was one of those days when just when you think things can't get any worse, they do. Have you had one of those days lately? Yeah, this was, this was one of those days because the driver of the car that was carrying these two girls who left them behind, she got out of the car, ran up to them with her finger pointed and started scolding them for not coming back to the car when they were supposed to. Well, that set off the mom of one of these girls, and she got up in the other mom's face. And I kid you not, it escalated into an outright screaming match right there in the middle of the church parking lot on my very first youth ministry event. Now, this happened 25 years ago, uh, but I do, I, I still remember it as if it happened yesterday. And I'm, I'm there, 
And I feel like I'm, an, I'm a spectator watching a TV show. Like I'm like, I'm trying to collect my thoughts. I'm trying to figure out how do I intervene? What do I say? And then the most surreal thing happened because as I'm there watching this all happen, one of the other parents came up to me and I guess he was trying to do some kind of comedic interlude or something like that to kind of, you know, de-escalate the situation, but he notices that I'm wearing a hat that has a Felix the, hat, Felix the Cat logo on it. That was one of the things I tried to do to connect with the kids, just something fun. And he turns to me and he says, as this screaming match is ensuing, he says, hey, is that Felix the Cat on your hat? And I'm like, I can't believe you're asking me that question at this moment. That just totally topped the entire night off. And, and so that was... That was, that was an epic fail. <laughs> that was a bad night. It completely exposed my inexperience, my, my lack of planning. And I had to go into the office the next day, and I had to explain to a senior pastor, my new boss, uh, what happened. And I was pretty sure that that was going to be the end <laughs> of my ministry there at the church. Um, but thanks to his graciousness, it, it wasn't. We, we had a bit of damage control that needed to be done, but, but that failure wasn't final, thank God. And I was able to rebound. I was able to learn from it and, and move on. Now, that's just, that's just one of many examples that I could tell you uh, from my life where I just completely bombed all of the mistakes that I've made. And if I were to write a book, I think the book that I'm most qualified to write would be titled Learning What's Right, by doing what's wrong. And, uh, and isn't that true of all of us so often? You know, some of the most important lessons that we learn, we learn them in the aftermath of failure. Now, we've been, um, we've been in this series called The Journey. We're looking through the Gospel of Mark, and, and we have seen from, from Jesus' disciples, his closest followers, all throughout this book, this truth that, that failure and faith They seem to go together in some way. They kind of go hand in hand more often than not because uh, we've just seen exhibit after exhibit of these guys getting it wrong on almost every page time and time again. And, And today's example, the passage that we're looking at this morning, this may be the biggest, uh, just epic failure that we've seen so far, um, But these failures, what we're going to find out is they actually open the door oftentimes to a deeper faith and a fuller faith. Because here's the truth is when our faith falters and we fail, Jesus remains faithful. And that's our hope. As our faith falters, he is faithful. And maybe that's, maybe that's a reminder that we need this morning. For, for me, it, it helps me remember to not set my expectations on perfection, uh, but on progress. And it's a very different life that gets lived with that expectation. And, and, I, and I'm talking to you as someone who is a bit of a perfectionist. Um, there's something bigger and better than avoiding failure, And what it is, is pursuing growth. And sometimes growth means failure. Uh, Because the reality is, like it or not, we are all going to continue to blow it. Um, It's not going to stop anytime soon. But when it comes to matters of faith, our failures, 
may actually open the door, may provide some of the greatest opportunities to grow and to learn. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to Mark chapter 9. And uh, we're going to read the details of the latest in a long list, a long line of discipleship failures. So, So let's read all about it. Starting in verse 14, it says this. And when they came to the disciples, and, and the they there means Jesus and uh, Peter, uh, James, and John, um, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. All right, let's just, let's just stop there. And, and let me just start with this question. Can, can you imagine... Um, that the disciples who are writing this, right? Peter is, is, is the one who's responsible for the content in this book, of, in the Gospel of Mark. But the disciples feel so free uh, to document their own abject failures. They weren't trying to push them aside. They weren't trying to, you know, uh, just paint themselves to be something they're not. But here we are 2,000 years later, reading about what they wanted us to know, that, uh, that they blew it early and often. And remember, these are the same guys who would go on to found the church and lead the early church, and, and they are definitely works in progress. And, and that's a reminder to us that um, a man and a woman of faith, uh, women of faith and men of faith are, are, are made, not born. Okay, so if you see someone and you say, wow, that person has such an amazing faith, realize that that didn't come natural to them. They weren't just born with that capacity to trust God, believe God, and all that kind of stuff. Um, faith is always cultivated. And so Jesus, he comes back down from this mountaintop moment. We looked at it last week with, with Peter, James, and John. And what he finds the rest of the disciples is, is that they are locked in this heated argument with the religious leaders. And so Jesus asks them, hey guys, what is going on here? But before the disciples can answer, before they can respond, someone else from the crowd steps up and he answers for them. He lays out the whole situation in vivid detail. And long story short, what he tells Jesus is that your disciples blew it. There's there's no other way to spin it. They had suffered a ministry failure of epic proportions. And so this this dad, this, this desperate dad, his original intention was to bring his suffering son to Jesus because he heard Jesus could help him. But Jesus was busy up on the mountain, and so the dad asked the disciples instead, cast out this demonic spirit out of my child. Now understand that that's something they ought not to have had a problem with. That that was in the disciples' wheelhouse. They had done that before. Jesus had previously deputized them with the authority to do just that, but they failed. They 
duked it out with the demon and they came out on the losing end. And so you can just imagine this is disappointing. Uh, it's embarrassing. It's confusing. And the disciples, they just can't argue with this man when he tells Jesus, your guys just couldn't get the job done. They just didn't have what it takes. And so listen again to the response that Jesus gives them. He says this, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And then he says, bring him to me. Now, I wouldn't describe that as like a a high point moment. I wouldn't describe that as a glowing endorsement of the disciples' work. Um, Jesus is saying that his disciples in particular and that generation as a whole were really having a hard time living living by faith. And and that's true of of us and of our generation as well, isn't it? And you know, that's something that Jesus hadn't ever encountered prior to to entering into this world, right? Trusting him was never a challenge at home in heaven for him. But for people like us, like you and like me, figuring out how to live out this faith, that is a genuine challenge. And the disciples still don't get it. They don't get how to take a take hold of the authority Jesus had entrusted to them and given them access to. And, and so what Jesus is getting at is that their failure, it wasn't because of a lack of, fail, of, of power. Their failure was from a lack of faith. And he's like saying like, guys, this is so basic. He says, it's all right here. This is like throwing you a softball, but you keep on swinging and missing. And so let me, let me just ask you, um, what tone do you inject into Jesus' words when he responds here? So when you hear him say this, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? You know, I'm pretty convinced that the tone we attach, that may say more about us than it does about him. Because some of us, it's like, you know, you faithless people, what's wrong with you? This, this tone of exasperation, but, but is it? It's like there's, there's certain passages in the Bible where we have to ask ourselves this question, like after Adam and Eve had, had eaten of the forbidden fruit in the garden and they hid from God and God comes in and he's looking for them. How do you hear what he says when he asks this question? Where are you? Is it, where are you? Or is it, where are you? Is, is it a tone of aggravation? Or, or is it a tone of concern? Right? Is, is Jesus' reply to the disciples, is this an indictment? Or is it compassionate concern? I, I don't think it's indictment. I don't think it's aggravation because here's the thing. He continues with them. He keeps on meeting them right where they're at. He teaches them what they need to learn again and again until they get it. And you know what? Eventually, they get it. It took a while. It took longer than it should have probably, but they did eventually get it. And that's the way he works in our lives as well. And that's good news. Aren't you glad 
that Jesus is long-suffering and patient with us because here we see in the aftermath of this most epic failure, Jesus doesn't say, you know, I've just had it with you guys. You guys are hopeless. You keep on missing it. I'm done with you. I'm out of here. I'm going to go find a few other disciples who are going to listen to me finally. All right? That's how this story could have ended, but it didn't. Despite their failure, despite our failures, Jesus remains faithful. He keeps on going with us. He keeps on working. And so he, he says this, bring the boy to me. Those, those are beautiful words. That's, that's like, okay, guys, you blew it. Yeah, but the story is not over. Now that you've learned what not to do, I'm going to show you how to do it. Let's keep on going and let's try it again. Let's read how it goes from there. He says, um, it says, they brought the boy to him and when the spirit saw him immediately and convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand lifted him up, and he arose. All right, you know, we've, we've seen so many exhibits, and this is the latest example of, of the reality of a spiritual adversary, of a foe um, who wants to do us in, that, that, that Satan and his minions are real, they're at work in our world, that they're terrorizing people's lives, seeking to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And we also see that on the other side, once again here, as we've seen in the past, is this reality of, of the freeing work that Jesus came to do, that he is a redeemer, that he is the rescuer. And then he demonstrates here again that he is the foremost and final and ultimate authority, and he sets the child free from the enemy's grip. What's new here in this particular encounter is the emphasis on this element of, of faith that gets drawn out. And so, as they bring the boy to Jesus, the, the, the demon manifests himself in the boy. And I gotta say, this is a pretty scary scene. You know, I, I can't imagine as a parent watching this happen to my child. The, the demon takes him down to the ground. And this boy is rolling around and even foaming at the mouth. And as that's happening, the dad turns to Jesus and he says, you know what? It's actually worse than what you're seeing here. What you're seeing here is bad, but it actually gets a whole lot worse than that. He says, this demon is having a suicidal influence on my son. He says, it throws my boy into the fire and tries to burn him, tries to throw him into the water to drown him. It's making him want to take his life. Now, that's a, that's a very scary reality. It's a reality that many families, many parents live with today. And it's an issue that, that all of the advancements of our modern age 
They haven't been able to figure this one out. They haven't been able to resolve this one. It's suicide. It's a very real, it's a very complicated issue. And you know, there's, there's chemical factors and relational factors and emotional factors and all that matters. And we don't ever want to also eliminate the reality of spiritual factors from the equation. Of course, we don't just reduce things to only the spiritual either, but this is a very serious issue. And if nothing else, I would call you to take note of one thing, that number one, Jesus doesn't shame the boy, right? He doesn't fault the father. He doesn't do anything like that. His concern is on freeing him from what's trying to destroy him. And that remains what Jesus is all about uh, today. And so that, that kind of sets up the scene for what the father says to Jesus in this conversation that happens. Now, now just remember this man, this father, he probably has scars on his body from the times he had to jump into the fire and got burned from rescuing his son from setting himself on fire, right? That's, that's his reality. This oppression has been his daily reality since the time his son was a child. And we don't know how old he is at this point. And so you add to that the reality that he just watched the disciples try and fail to help him. Man, it probably wouldn't be a stretch to say that he is likely just standing right on the edge of hopelessness. He came in with expectation. He heard all about Jesus and all the things that he could do. But, but right now at this point, he's not, he's not so sure. And so he, he says to Jesus, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. This, this father's faith, it's a faltering faith, right? The disciples' faith was failing. His, his is faltering. And, and Jesus responds again with a, a gentle correction, just a clarification. The question is not if. Just like with the disciples, the, the limiting factor in this equation is not a lack of power. It's the absence of faith, And so he assures the man and says, all things are possible for the one who believes. Now we've just come to what may be the most abused, manipulated and ripped out of context verse in the entire Bible. All things are possible for the one who believes. Understand that is a promise from God. What that promise is not, it's not a blank check written with Jesus' signature on it, that he's handed to us, that we can write out to whoever, wherever, in whatever situation we want. All right, I I know there are preachers on TV who are telling you that is the case, but they're wrong. And we'll just leave it at that. That is not what this is about. This is about recognizing and believing, about having this confident expectation that Jesus is fully capable of accomplishing his will. 100% competent. There's no obstacle that's too great. There's no authority that's too high. There's no enemy that's too strong to obstruct and oppose his redeeming work. That's what it means, that our Savior is sovereign no matter how desperate the situation gets. And so the Father hears Jesus say that, and, and he responds immediately. He receives that clarification, and he says, I believe, help my unbelief. I I love that statement. His faith is faltering and he's so desperately 
honest about it, man. He, he knows that his faith is not what it ought to be. And instead of trying to pretend, instead of trying to hide, instead of trying to put on a show, he just lays it all out. Jesus, I need your help. I can't believe the way that I need to believe. I, I don't know about you, but to me, that makes him one of the most relatable figures we ever meet in all of the Bible. Here it is. There's, there's belief and there's unbelief, both residing inside of his heart. What he believes is real, it's genuine. He's trusted enough to bring his son to Jesus and go to him. But there's also these tinges of doubt that are echoing inside of him. Jesus can't help you. This is too big for him. Your reality is gonna be this way forever. It's never going away. And that unbelief was just, it was too much for him. He couldn't shake it. He couldn't overcome it on his own. So as this father's faith is faltering, and of course we've all been there as well, right? We know that what that's like. Here's the question, what does Jesus do with that? Maybe it's worth pointing out what Jesus doesn't do, right? He doesn't respond and say, sorry guy. You know, I really would have liked to have helped you today, but you failed the faith test. You just don't have the faith that it takes. So why don't you figure this one out and come back after you've dealt with all your unbelief and then maybe then I'll do something for you. That's, that's what Jesus doesn't say. Instead, he meets the man where he's at. You see, your faith however perfect or imperfect it is, however much you have or how much you lack, that doesn't put a lid on Jesus' ability or willingness to work. Thank God, right? He, he wants to build up our faith. He wants us to be people who believe him, who trust him, who have a stronger confidence in him. But sometimes he does that by meeting us right where we're at, grabbing our hands and showing us so maybe this father's word, maybe, maybe we need to make that our prayer this week. Lord, I believe you help my unbelief. That's an invitation for him to come alongside us, to bring the reality of our unbelief and ask him to help us. And he does. Because as our faith falters, Jesus is still faithful. He is forever faithful. And that's good news. The good news is that when the father walked home with his son, there, weren't, there wasn't just one person who was restored. The father had his unbelief taken out and the son had the demon taken out. They were both strengthened and they were both set free. There's one last scene to look at in this account. This is the debrief. Uh, between Jesus and the disciples and the feedback he gets. And so here's what it says, and here's how the passage closes. When he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So it's, it's the end of the day. And even though the situation was resolved, you can imagine the disciples still have some nagging questions. They still don't understand what went wrong. Why weren't we able to, to deal with that demon? And, and Jesus' answer, it kind of puts the whole 
passage in perspective and it sums what the whole passage has been about. He says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. What an amazing answer. It's a fascinating answer. And I really wish I was there because I got to tell you, I would have about 15 or 20 follow-up questions for Jesus. What does that mean? What are you talking about? You know, the Bible makes it so clear that there is an invisible spiritual reality. Um, It's real. It's a battleground. The battle is raging. But there is so much more to this spiritual side than, than we're told in Scripture. We just get these very small glimpses. And so this is one of them. Some spirits are, are more stubborn than others. All right. I'm not, I'm not exactly quite sure what that means, but it does talk about the priority of prayer. That prayer is a primary factor in this, in this battleground. It's an essential ingredient to all kingdom ministry. And, and Jesus' response, it seems to imply that disciples, when they were trying to do this, they were trying to do kingdom redeeming work in their own strength and power. Like, all right, we got the techniques down. We know what to say. We got the formula. And, and they were trying to drive out this demon apart from dependency, apart from prayer. And Jesus just says, guys, it's not how this works. That doesn't work that way. Kingdom work never gets accomplished in our own strength and our own power. It's always what God is doing through us, through Jesus' strength and his power and his authority. And prayer is what opens up our lives to access that power. And what that means is that as we are learning about this walk of faith, as we are figuring out and struggling and stumbling on how to, how to live out this life of faith, one thing is clear. We never make it past this stage of desperate dependency, right? That, that was the take-home for them, for the disciples, and it's probably a good take-home for us, that it doesn't matter how long you've been walking with the Lord, how many church services you've been to, how many times you've read through the Bible, how many things you've got on your resume. There's only one professional. His name is Jesus. The rest of us, we're all novices. And that means we need him. And the good news is he's willing and able to work through us. And so our availability has to intersect with his strength because our strength just doesn't do it. It just doesn't do it. Whatever, whatever it is in our lives, and there's so much in my life that fuels this attitude of self-sufficiency. Those are the things that get in the way of kingdom work, of being used by God. And you know, if this passage were being written by people in our culture today, the story wouldn't go this way. They, they would say, well, you had it within you all along and all you had to do is just believe in yourself. And if you believed in yourself enough, you would have been able to do anything. You can knock down all those limits. It's all right there within you. Newsflash, you're not enough. But the good news is that Jesus is always enough You can believe in yourself all you want and your life will stay in bondage. 
But as we connect our lives to his, to Jesus, and we, and we get his strength and we, we, we appropriate his authority, that's where we see breakthrough because it's, it's, it's about him and not about us. That's the take home. That's the lesson of learning how to live out this life of faith. So when you fail, like the disciples failed, like, like the father faltered, it's not that big a deal. But when we fail, the question is, let's find Jesus. Where is he? We will find him that he is right there with us, ready to take us by the hand, ready to lead us forward, ready to build us up. And so let us be more aware of his faithfulness than our failures. Let's pray together.